Welcome to the Crypto Podcast. You can find all our episodes on the CryptoPodcast.org. We're also on BitChute and YouTube. I have four other podcasts, The Awakening Podcast, Learn Polish Podcast, Meditation Podcast, and Speaking Podcast, as well as being a podcasting coach in case you'd like to actually get started in podcasting. And you can find everything on RoyCon.com. Today, my guest, currently in Switzerland, please welcome Didier Borel. Good afternoon. Nice to, nice to speak to you, Roy. Fellow podcaster as well, see, might just introduce yourself to the listeners yeah my name is my name is didier burrell i now run i have a podcast called the swiss road to crypto i used to be well as you might hear from my voice i grew up in the us in in america but i've lived in switzerland most of my life in london as well i used to be a a fixed income trader and then a fixed income broker and i did that for many years and that market died down for you know, I had a lot of fun at it for, for a certain number of years, and then that market died down basically because of overregulation and because of uh, very low interest rates. And a little bit by chance, I discovered uh, crypto. And of course, like everybody else, at the well, crypto meaning Bitcoin. In fact, I discovered Bitcoin. Uh, nowadays, people, you know, conflate all types of crypto, but in fact, the, the basis is Bitcoin. So I... Uh, I came across Bitcoin a bit coincidentally, and of course, at the beginning, I didn't take it seriously. And then somebody who I respect a lot told me, no, it's not a scam. You got to take it seriously. And uh, so because it came from somebody who I respect a lot, I didn't want to answer to him. It's a scam because the price is going up fast. But I figured I have to educate myself first before I explain to him why it's, it's crap. Why it's you know a scam and then like everybody once i started to educate myself i went down the rabbit hole and i found it fantastic so and i became interested in that because uh i like new technologies that change the world basically and uh, that's what i i saw a whole new area it's a little bit like christopher columbus discovering america who did so uh so there are many things you can do in crypto. And one of the reasons I'm a little bit like you, I do a podcast is because I like discovering interesting people doing interesting things. And that's a little bit what I try to bring about on my podcast and interesting people doing interesting things and going in new directions. So there you go. Excellent. And because I know, I mean, I, I missed the boat because I was told early about, uh, you know, Bitcoin, but I've read a lot of books, Kindle books they were. And they were actually very poor. There was like, I don't know how many I read, but I was still bamboozled. And recently I've kind of seen that NFTs, I actually get it. I'm, you know, I'm setting up stuff now. I've got artists and everything for digital art and I really get it. And I got one book on it and it explained it so well. And it's a shame that at the time I didn't get a book that actually broke it down into such a way that you could digest. But there's a lot of them, like there's a lot of people, they're trying to understand it and they get bamboozled with the way people are trying to explain it to them. That's true. And that's, uh, I sort of limited myself mostly to, to Bitcoin and to Ethereum. In Bitcoin, I think Andreas Antonopoulos is the best educator. So I've learned a lot from him. Also Matt O'Dell as well. But I agree in general, that is a problem. On the other hand, nowadays you can learn almost everything for free on the internet, and uh, uh, and that's great. I mean, uh, I also took a course at Nicosia in Bitcoin, but in fact, I found that I didn't really learn many things. I already learned it all myself on the internet. So you either go on the internet or you buy, could buy books. Or 
Andreas Antonopoulos' books are very good. But uh, yeah, it's, it's normal that you find it. I always say that it's normal that you don't understand it unless you're a cryptographer or if you're, if you're sort of in, in, in computers and, and distributed systems like the internet. If that is not your field of expertise, if either one of those fields is not your field of expertise, it's relatively normal and understandable. It's going to take time to, understand, to get it. But once you get it, you know, you get it and it's great, yeah. So I can completely understand what you're saying. But once you find a good, edu- you know, it's like anything. Once you find a good educator, in your case, a good book, then your, your view changes. Yeah, I, um, I found late, later then uh, Gary Gensler, there's a free MIT course on mm, YouTube. Exactly. And I, I thought that was excellent. But and now he's actually in the government. So just t- your thoughts on on what he's he's actually doing in, in the States. Ah, <laughs> Yeah, in the States, I don't always understand. They, they have many different regulators. So you have the impression on the one hand, there are different people fighting from different points of view. Well, different regulators trying to grab this as my territory. In general, he, he does uh, probably understand Bitcoin quite well. I, I always get a kick out of the fact that we try to regulate it. So again, it's a conflation. We conflate when we try to regulate crypto and like what, what type of crypto are we talking about? Are we talking about Bitcoin? Are we talking about stable coins? Are we talking about CBDCs? There are certain things you can regulate and certain things you, you can't regulate, right? In my opinion. So for example, in Bitcoin is, which I call really the only only problem, not maybe the only, but probably the most decentralized and really decentralized cryptocurrency. So you can't regulate it. What you can regulate is the on and off ramps. In other words, when people go from fiat currency to to Bitcoin or from Bitcoin to fiat. So those points you can you can regulate. In other words, people are going to want to exchange a Bitcoin against fiat on an exchange or in a bank. So the on and on ramp on and on ramps can be regulated. As long as you stay within Bitcoin and you never sell it and you you know pay people with it. Uh, there's nothing there's no regulation there to be to be done in my opinion if you want to regulate stable coins especially fiat backed stable coins that makes sense if you want to regulate crypto backed stable coins that's going to be difficult and then you'll you'll see if your fiat best if your crypto backed stable coin is really on a decentralized on a decentralized blockchain or not when you try to regulate it and, CBDCs, I don't think they're going to come for another four or five years. And uh, so it's uh, unfortunately, everybody, of course, wants regulation because nobody in the end wants to be, you know, slapped on the wrist with a huge fine. But uh, unfortunately, in the States, it's still uh, it's still confusing, you know, still confusing for a lot of people. But certainly regulation will come. Unfortunately, we have to the only way to really avoid regulation is to stay in a decentralized blockchain and to only and never go go between uh, your cryptocurrency and and fiat money. If you stay purely within your cryptocurrency and it really is decentralized and nobody can regulate you. And with the stable coin, then you might just explain that a bit because it's something that hasn't been covered on previous episodes. So, like Tether is one of a stable coin, yeah. I believe. Yes. So stable coins, the idea originally came from the fact that people thought that Bitcoin was too volatile to be a means of payment because they were still counting, they were still using as a means of payment classic fiat currencies. Fiat currencies, I mean the classic, I mean money that's not bank, backed. I mean money, fiat currencies, I mean money that is 
managed by a central bank and that is not backed by a hard asset like gold. So that's basically all the currencies we know, like the dollar, the euro, and so on. So not not managed by a central institution, which is usually a central bank, and not and not backed uh, by a hard asset like gold. So people thought that Bitcoin was too volatile. So let's get something. Um, uh, let's get a, a coin that trades on a on a blockchain that's more stable. So so first, there are what you call like fiat-backed stable coins. So fiat-backed stable coins like Tether, for example, like USDC, like USDG, which is issued by Gemini, and there are many others, are coins that... So how do you create it? What happens? Basically, for example, USDG, which is managed by Gemini, the exchange, you, you uh, send money to provider of this stable coin like Gemini or other people, you send money to them, your money ends up in a bank account, and they issue a token for you, usually on the Ethereum blockchain, but it can be another blockchain, they issue for you money on a blockchain that represents the dollar that you have sent to them. And now you have a representation of a dollar that's trading on a blockchain like Ethereum and so on. So that's fine. And it's always going to be one to one against the dollar. The, the problem there is there's an element of trust. Basically, you have to trust that that the issuer of the stable coin, like Tether or Circle or whoever it is, did not issue a dollar thirty of stable coins when they only have a dollar in the bank. So basically, that means you have to audit them. So you have to audit them to make sure there really is one dollar in the bank and one dollar and only one dollar is represented on a blockchain. And so those are going to be regulated for sure sooner or later and and even circle which manages usdc which is the second biggest fiat backed stable coin has just applied for a banking license but that i find completely normal that you regulate it because they're basically like a bank you huh? so however i could say that once the money is on blockchain and if the blockchain really is like decentralized like ethereum once it's on there, it's going to be very difficult to regulate. You're only going to be able to regulate the on and off ramps, like I said before. So that's like a fiat-based stable coin. And those are the biggest and the most liquid. And the most, the two or three most liquid is, is Tether, which is the biggest in the world, which a lot of people in Asia use. USD, so that's USDT, like Tether. USDC, like Circle, is the biggest one in the US. And they've just applied for a banking license, or they're going to apply for a banking license. USDG, which is the same one issued by Gemini in the US, is also very big, and there are other ones. Then you have fiat-backed stable coins, which are uh, which are a very good idea. The whole idea here with the not sorry, not a fiat-backed stable coin. Sorry about that. Crypto-backed stable coins. You have crypto-backed stable coins, and here the whole idea of a crypto-backed stable coin is you get away from being able from being regulated because you're not physically touching the dollar. So crypto-backed stablecoin, the biggest, the biggest one right now is um, DAI, which is done by MakerDAO, which is a project that was financed by Silicon Valley venture capitalists. And what you do is, it, I call it a little bit like a lumbar loan. In other words, you put up collateral and we, we lend you money. So, uh, for example, you'll put up at like at least a dollar fifty in, in the make or die system. You'll put up at, at you over collateralize. So you put up at least a dollar fifty worth of, of ether. Usually, you put up in fact about two dollars worth of ether. You issue you so you take some ether. You put it in a smart contract. You go to the Ethereum blockchain. 
you go to their site, you put some, you transfer some of your ether into a smart contract uh, managed by them, and you have you follow, you put in say two dollars worth of ether, and they're going to issue for you a coin that's called Dai, which is always going to be have a value of one to one towards to the dollar. So now you have a, a representation of, well, you have DAI, which is always going to be pegged one-to-one -one on the dollar on the Ethereum blockchain, but I think they're only on the Ethereum blockchain. And so you're putting up, you're putting up collateral, but crypto collateral, so whenever touching the dollar, and they're issuing something for you that's always going to be worth one-to-one uh, uh, -to -one towards the dollar. And if the value of your collateral goes down, so in other words, if the value of Ether goes down, below 150% of the dollars that we've issued for you, you get a margin call and you have to put up more so that you're always covered by at least 150 percent in switzerland in fact there was recently uh there's now been a, a new stable coin called liquidy where you have to put up much less collateral uh 110 percent and there's no interest on it whereas on the maker die system there is small interest on it so there are more and more of those coming and those are going to be also more difficult to regulate because in fact you're never touching the dollar and that that's so, so if the whole idea of crypto or blockchains is to have a decentralized censorship resistant database and to get away from regulation and censorship by a regulator, you have to get away from the dollar. So that was the whole point here. And so those are interesting projects. They're not yet as big or as liquid as the fiat backed ones. And then there are also um, algorithmic stable coins, which I have to say, I don't know that well, much about, like Terra, has a stable coin called Luna. And I have to say, I don't, I haven't really studied them to know really how they work. I think you have to burn a stable coin and they issue one for you, but I, I couldn't really tell you how they work because I haven't really looked at them. What are the yeah. gas fees then with, uh, when you're using stable coin? Is it the same or is it different? It, yeah, it is. Uh, so often people will go on a second layer solution of Ethereum like Arbitran, or they'll go on to another blockchain like um, uh, that's usually like a fork of, uh, of, of Ethereum and there you get lower gas fees. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't used it that much. When I try to pay people in stable coins, few people will take it. And I have the impression many people, like if I, you know, if I go abroad and I want to pay a hotel, uh, instead of going through a classic brain transfer and everybody taking their couple percent, I'd rather pay them directly in a stable coin. But unfortunately, often, but the hotels I go to haven't wanted to take it yet. So I think a lot of people who use stable coins are, are traders, relatively day traders in various cryptocurrencies. They'll make a small profit in whatever there is they're trading. And then they want to take their profit and keep it and don't want to suffer the volatility of crypto markets so they put it in a stable coin for a couple of days and wait for the next trade so uh, meaning i don't i don't do very much of that myself so i don't i i don't really follow the fees that much but certainly the the fees on ethereum are are high because ethereum is a victim of its success and uh, so everybody wants lower fees so they go off on other on other blockchains that are similar to Ethereum, but they'll have lower fees like uh, like uh, Poly or uh, or second layer solutions of like Arbitron. But yeah, there you go. I'm assuming there's no problem putting stable coins onto a cold wallet, or must you just keep it within the system? Like you mentioned Gemini, where you'd be getting in. Are you able to actually you know do it like a, your normal crypto? Yeah, yeah. You can you can also 
So you can leave it in an exchange or you can also put them on a hardware wallet. Uh, absolutely. That, that's the whole point is that, that the whole point is to eliminate the friction of going from a cryptocurrency back to a bank. Every time you want to, that was all sort of whole point of stable coins is like, we like Bitcoin, but uh, we want to take our profits and we want the money to be stable. Okay, send it back to the bank. Ah, no, that takes two or three days. There's fees, there's friction. Can we, can we keep it on blockchain? instantaneously for more or less free with much less friction so that was the whole point yeah so absolutely you can either keep it in your hardware wallet or keep it in exchange or wherever you keep your crypto absolutely and which wallets and exchanges would you actually recommend ah wallets i have several but there's one a swiss one that i like called bitbox because uh because i like the design and it's cool but they're you know you can they're the I've used Trezor, Ledger, Bitbox, but there are other ones that are very good that I've never used, like Cold Card or things like that. And, and on that, I ha rather than just staying on the walls, because it's only the Ledger that I've used, have you found advantages and disadvantages from the, the, the three that you mentioned? No, they're quite similar. Ledger and Trezor are quite similar. The interface is quite similar. They're all using the underlying same technology, which is BIP, uh, I forgot what the number is, 34 or 36 or 32 or whatever it is. Bitbox, the interface is a little bit better. You, you, you use a little bit your fingers, but it's a little bit more like cool design, a little bit like if you like Mac design instead of, a, you know, vulgar or whatever, Microsoft products or whatever, you go for Bitbox. And plus they're... they're, they're the CEO has been a core developer of Bitcoin. The other ones I know of, people like other ones that I don't, that I've never used, like cold card and things like that, saying they're safer. But if you, but uh, I don't know what the interface is like. But I, I, you know, I also run my own node. I find that a little bit like you. In other words, if you say that to uh, having your own hardware wallet, having your own node. Maybe some people listening to that, this will be intimidated by that. Ah, you must be an expert. Ah, that sounds difficult and all that. And I find, in fact, it's just as easy as managing your e-banking account or, or your email. But before you get started, you find it difficult and intimidating and so on. But um, like you, if you have the proper book or the proper tutor to take you by the hand and show you how it's done, you will see in the end it's just as safe and easy as as running your own e-banking account or whatever so exactly. there you go. now there are videos on you know on youtube on everything so yeah not exactly and with the like the proof of work and proof of stake then i mean i know that the ethereum is supposed to go to the proof of stake because i see with the nfts that if you're you know the cost can be the gas fees can be high so just your thoughts on that yeah yeah uh, uh, well, of course, I'm a, I think, unfortunately, the proof of stake is the fastest road to centralization. And, I, and I'll tell you why in a second. But if you like, let's not forget what the basis is. The, the, let's not go back to the fundamentals. A blockchain for me is just, uh, fundamentally, it's just another way of organizing a database. That's really, for me, that's really all it is. It's another form or method of organizing a database. And if, if you organize your database in a proper well-known in a proper blockchain, it's decentralized. You, you obtain one quality that you never obtain anywhere else. And that quality is censorship resistance, or that property is censorship resistance. So if you organize your, your database in the form of a blockchain, you obtain censorship resistance, and that is a tremendous quality 
uh, that you can only get in, in that form. But to get censorship resistance, you need decentralization. You cannot obtain censorship with this resistance with a centralized database. For me, I don't like proof of stake because it's the fastest road to centralization. So uh, what do I mean by that? Proof of stake, you first have to own coins that you're going to stake. And then when you are a staker, you are going to take uh, all the pending transactions or the pending uh, transactions in a blockchain and you're going to put them together and you're going to validate them and put them in a block. And that's going to take much less energy than on proof of work. However, you need coins to stake. And when you, st and when you validate blocks, you get recompensated with more coins. So that means if I own 70% of the coins or if I own a large proportion of the coins, I'm going to be, they'll tell you they choose the stakers randomly among the coin holders. But if you own 70% of the coins, you're going to be chosen randomly 70% of the time. Whereas in a proof of work system, you don't have to own any coins to, to, to form another block. You just need hashing power. So uh, in a proof of work, proof of stake system, if you own 70% of the coins, you're going to be, you're going to be staking, you're going to be composing 70% of the, of the blocks and you're going to end up owning more coins because you get compensated by getting a little, by getting fees and more coins. And then they'll tell you, yeah, but we're going to make sure that if you compose the last block, you're not going to be able to compose another one for whatever, two weeks or 10 blocks or whatever it is. And that I don't understand either, because what does that mean? Does that mean Therefore, you have a list of names and a list of coins. Because if I own 70% of the blocks, I'm naturally going to be chosen 70% of the time. And if you tell me I can't compose another block for another two weeks, what does that mean? You have the name of all my, you have a number and a name for all my coins. I, I don't understand how that works. So for me, it's the fastest road to centralization. Plus, most people are not going to be like, for example, in Ethereum, you have you have two two sort of statuses. You have you have validator and staker. So to be a validator, you have to run some hardware on a node and you have to have at least 132 Ether coins. So that's already quite high. That's more or less $400,000 of Ether. If you're not a, a validator, you can be a staker. In other words, you have less, for example, than 132 coins and you don't want to go to the trouble of running the node. Be a staker and de delegate your coins to somebody else and they'll stake and you'll get part of the reward. So who's going to end up being the validators the validators are going to end up being people like for example coinbase and kraken who offer this service now to their clients give us your coins and we'll validate into our validating node and we'll as a staker you'll you'll get some compensation for that so basically that's also another we're going to centralize all the coins and then in the end these the big validators are going to end up you know sort of running the show so that's another reason why i don't like uh, proof of stake whereas you know, in proof of work, if you own zero coins, can you can you con contribute to consensus and form more blocks? Yes, you can. If I own zero coins and the guy next to me owns 20% of the outstanding coins, does the guy next to me in a proof of work system, does he have an advantage over me? No, he doesn't. He only has an advantage is if he has a lot more hashing power. So uh, you're not, a, you know, you can form consensus and you can validate blocks in a proof of work system with zero coins. They'll tell you, ah, yeah, but the guy next to you has 20% of the hashing power. So he, he owns 20% he owns of the network. I'll say, yeah, no, but not quite because people make hardware improvements all the time. You can find another algorithm, another software algorithm to mine faster that might give you an advantage. And 
Yeah, so that's why I, I don't like proof of stake. But but we a lot of blockchains will end up for sure going to proof of stake because people want people want speed and they want low fees and the fastest way and the best way and the only way to get to speed and and low fees is centralization so we'll end up going to and and censorship resistant isn't all that important for many things it's only really important for money huh? money is the ultimate is the ultimate uh, application where you need censorship resistance for many other things you don't so we'll go there and it's you know but i have no problem with that just don't sell me a sell me the idea that you have a decentralized censorship resistant blockchain just don't sell me that idea but you just tell me you have a centralized database which is fine but you know just be honest about what you're trying to sell me that's all and with all the coins that are being created i think it's something like eight thousand now and i know there's a lot of rug pulls but some that i'm hearing is they're they're releasing like say 10 percent or whatever I mean, that's like the Federal Reserve. They have their own printing press and they're releasing a certain percentage. Like, it's, it's strange that actually people actually are investing in something like that. Yes. So, there, yeah, there are several, of course. That, that's why people love Bitcoin and myself included as a store of value. In other words, you know, in Satoshi Nakamoto, when you read the right paper, he says he invented, I forgot the first line exactly, but it's something peer-to-peer -peer payment mechanism. So he thought he was inventing a payment mechanism. But now the way people have used it is it's become a store of value. And why is it a store of value? It's because the issuance is completely predetermined. And it never says anywhere 21 million Bitcoin, but it, it's derived sort of indirectly. It's the fact that we issue six and a certain amount of Bitcoin in every block, and that issuance amount get cut every four years. And at one point, you can't cut the thing in half anymore, because uh, you can't cut a Satoshi in half. So uh, you get to, at that point, you're at 21 million. Uh, so it, there's, every node is validating all the time all these rules, meaning there is no central place where you determine the amount of uh, the amount of uh, money that's being issued and and every, every node has to confirm on every block that we only issued the proper amount of bitcoin per, per that block so th that's why it's programmatic and that's why you've taken out the control of issuance from a single person and so that's why it's a store of value because there'll be a limited amount it's a little bit like if i say to you you know if you own a, a painting by da Vinci or Picasso, you're never going to be deluded because he's not going to make any more because he's dead. So uh, with Bitcoin, there's a predetermined amount. And if you want to try to change that amount, it's in fact a fork. So uh, that's what people like. So uh, yeah, so he invented a store of value and, and Ethereum, I mean, I, I think it's a great like, like tool everybody builds on it it's a little bit like an android or an ios but they've changed their monetary policy all the time so that was the whole point with bitcoin is in fact you've taken the control out of one person and you've put it with everybody so you got to get everybody to agree to change and in fact that'll be in fact before so yeah i mean if you want to have dilution it's a little bit like you know you own shares of a company and then you wake up one day and the, and the, the board has said we're going to issue 10 percent more shares so your your participation in the company has just been diluted by 10 percent that that's not necessarily a problem it just you know depends what you want if you want store of value because you have a fixed amount stick with bitcoin if you want if you're going to this coin for something else uh, uh, that's fine 
Uh, I know uh, you've also discussed uh, why trying to blacklist addresses is useless. You might uh, elaborate a bit on that. Yeah. Gensler and so on, they want to, you know, regulate Russian. Uh, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever. Now the, 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 the US dollar is going to lose a bit of its world reserve status because because people see that the US dollar, if the government wants to exclude you or freeze you out, they can do that. That's what they're doing with Russia. So little by little, other people are going to notice that and not like it. And they're going to try to wean themselves off the, the, the dollar system. And then, and probably China is going to as well. So uh, then they said, ah, these people are going to use Bitcoin. And so, ah, let's, let's blacklist, let, let's, let's corner them there. Let's not let them use Bitcoin. And, in fact, that's a ridiculous amount, a ridiculous thing. Uh, so for several reasons. One is, again, like I said, as long as you stay within Bitcoin, you buy and sell Bitcoin, nobody can stop you because it really is decentralized. Uh, they can only sort of corner you when you go on and on and off ramp. Second of all, you know, people might not realize this, but for example, in, in Bitcoin is one of the few where for each coin you have a new address. Your wallet generates addresses. So you can send your Bitcoin to yourself to a new address, right? So they're going to tell you, ah, this is uh, these coins here with these Bitcoin addresses, those are blacklisted. Well, first of all, they're blacklisted for whom? They're blacklisted, who do they tell the government? They tell exchanges and banks, they don't tell me. Huh? You as an individual person are not, uh, are not uh, you know, concerned. So you, So the person who's blacklisted can send money to himself at a new address, and then that, so then the, the government's always playing catch up, right? And your your wallet can generate, I don't know, like a million addresses a minute or something. So, and who are they, who are they going to ask to enforce that? Only the banks and not individuals. So uh, on the one hand, it makes no sense because the technology is faster than the legislator because your wallet, address, wallet generates addresses all the time. And second of all, then you need, you, you need to send money to yourself, to your new address and have that put into a block. So will the miners uh, exclude that? And in fact, history has already shown that the miners don't exclude that because there was a miner in the US, I think it was Marathon, but don't quote me on the name, but I'm sure there was a miner and he was in the US. And to please uh, the government, he says, oh, okay, all these blacklisted addresses, I will make sure that I do not mine them and put them in a block. And very quickly, he abandoned that. First, because a lot of the, uh, well, I'm not for, first, because those those transactions with those addresses were going into blocks mined by other people outside the U.S. in some country where they don't give a, give a hoot. So he was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm forfeiting these transactions and they're getting mined anyway. So it makes no difference. Uh, so he says, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. Meaning that's why I say, you know, it makes no sense because your, your transaction is going to be put into a block and your wallet can generate a ton of them. They, they can they can. They can only get you at the on and off ramp in a place where that person wants to, you know, respect your respect that decision. You know, if it's a Russian who wants to take his money out on a Russian exchange, they, you know, he probably doesn't give a shit about what the Americans say. So, so yeah, that's why I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, no, excellent. And uh, just finally, your 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 podcast. You might let people know what you're covering in that. Yeah, yeah. So I run a podcast called The Swiss Road to Crypto. I like crypto and I like, well, decentralization. 
So my podcast, in fact, in Switzerland, I think there are a lot of uh, great things going on that are not that well known and that are, and that's what a little bit what I try to uncover. I find here that there are a lot of people who are very knowledgeable and doing interesting things. And legal system is a lot more sort of favorable than in other legal systems. And that's what I try to a little bit show in my podcast. So I often have a Swiss guest, but not only. I recently did one with uh, somebody from the Bitcoin Policy Institute in the U.S. because he educates a little bit the U.S. government on, on Bitcoin. But uh, yeah, that's what I. So I have a podcast called The Swiss Road to Crypto, and we. Do, I I'm more interested in in discovering people doing interesting things and more cutting edge things and keeping up with the news and discussing whether the price is going to go up this week and down next week. That that doesn't really interest me, but it's more finding people doing interesting things and trying to learn something from somebody interesting there you go yeah so did you totally enjoyed our conversation how can people get in contact with you okay so my the podcast is on the site is called the swiss road crypto you can always get a get a send me an email there i'm also on linkedin didier burrell or on on twitter under at didier burrell and uh there we go i hope uh, i'd love to uh love to be in touch with any of your listeners okay make sure i put the link symbol to the audio on the video thank you very much okay all right thank you roy it was a pleasure it's all for the crypto podcast you'll find all our episodes on the cryptopodcast.org as mentioned we're on bitchute and youtube be sure to subscribe give us a thumbs up five star rating really helps in the algorithm until next week take care